Welcome to The Driven Entrepreneur, where we sit down with visionaries, trailblazers, and entrepreneurs, and discover why and how they do what they do. We'll get the backstory, plus plenty of life and business lessons along the way. Here's your host, Matt Browning. Hey, welcome back to another episode of the show. I'm your host, Matt Browning. Of course, it is Interview Friday. We always have a special Interview Friday for you. Today, I have with me uh, someone who, man, I have been waiting to bend his ear, or to actually to have my ear bent. I want to hear his wisdom for several months, ever since I met him. He is, uh, he's done some, a lot of stuff. His name's Jim Beach. His first book, The School for Startups, was published by McGraw-Hill in June 2011. So he is a legit published author with a real publishing company. I know there's a lot of Amazon bestselling, uh, self-published people out there. Jim's a real deal. He started businesses and has taught entrepreneurship around the world. At the age of 25, he founded American Computer Experience and grew the company with no extra capital infusions to $12 million in annual revenue. And this is crazy. I want to talk to you about some leadership on this. Over 700 employees. They're operating in 39 states and three countries. So he knows a thing or two about business. He's taught entrepreneurship at the Georgia State University for nine years, ranked number one business school for 12 straight semesters. He also founded the School for Startups. He's now taught over 7,000 people how to be low risk entrepreneurs. He's been featured in a UPS commercial. I love the CNN called him the Simon Cowell of small business. And I think that's probably for your charming personality. Corporations like Wells Fargo, Toshiba, UPS, and SunTrust have hired him as a speaker and consultant, and his radio show is nationally syndicated on several radio stations, AM and FM. Welcome to the show, Jim Beach. How are you, sir? Thank you so much. Good to see you. It's been good to see you, too. So before we started taping, we've been having a great conversation, but I thought at some point we got to start start recording this, so let's just get going. Um, First question is, I, I love asking this question to entrepreneurs. When you grew up, were you one of these kids that looked around and said, I got to figure out how they built the sandbox and how to market them? Or did you just play and then one day you fell into it? Did you always, were you always wired like this? Did you have a lemonade stand or was this something later in life? Uh, I grew up thinking I was going to be the CEO of Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola decided differently and escorted me to the door and at 23, I realized my life was, as I had dreamed, more or less, over. And I did have a mentor at Coca-Cola, a very high up executive, someone famous and important there. And he said that I should go and be an entrepreneur and that everyone at Coke didn't think I would fit in well. And that's why they had decided to not invite me to stick around anymore. And I said, an entre what? uh, so you had an adverse personality for corporate i don't fit in well and play well with others so they saw that in you and how old were you when you went to like did you like did you go to like you know school for this and think okay i'm gonna get into management i'm gonna become the ceo that was your whole plan I, i did a lot more than that so during high school i had a internship at Coca-Cola in the corporate headquarters, and they even tried to trick me. They called and said, Jim, we we don't have a good job for you. We only have a loading dock job for you, and you need to be there every morning at five and load trucks for eight hours, and that's the job we've arranged for you in the summer. 
and do you accept it? And I was like, yes, I accept that job. And like two hours later, the guy called back laughing, said, I was actually teasing just to see if you would actually accept that job or not. You have a job in the international legal department, wear a tie every day. And so I started my Coca-Cola life at the age of 15 or 16. During college, I internshiped there. During graduate school, I internshiped there. And then I worked there at the corporate headquarters in Japan and uh, had some important positions there. And uh, they so got this really was your plan. I mean, this is where you were oh, going to yeah. end up whole for thing. sure. Whole thing. That was so, the whole thing. So did they, did they do what my boss did in the mortgage business? And, you know, he waited outside my steps one day and said, hey, man, I think our time together is over and you got to find somewhere else. So I like to say that I quit slash got fired. I'm not sure. It's kind of perspective, but similar I experience. Fired. I got 100 percent. There's no, there's no ambiguity on that one. It's, it's pretty clear. <laughs> at that point, and this is again the part I'm most curious about, did you say, okay, I'm going to figure out this entrepreneurship thing? Or did you have, honestly, did you have a time of like, uh, you weren't sure what to do? You had to find yourself? Did you, were you scared? Were you excited? Uh, I was petrified and I did have to find myself because I had no clue what I wanted to do. One thing that was clear, I, was, I didn't want to go back to Japan and all of you know, my resume pointed in that direction. And I had a good friend suggest that maybe that there were other things that I was passionate about. And this is one of these passion words. And this is why my perspective on passion, I think, is very different from everyone else and the whole purpose, purpose, passion, all these things. I get into arguments with these words. Uh, my passion, he said, what, you know, what would that be? And I said, well, I'd love, 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 love to be an architect. And he said, well, you should go to architecture school. And I said, well, you know, I don't know how to draw. I've never done any architecture at all or anything. And so I decided to try to become an architect. And I applied and everything. And I had to take the MCAT, GMAT, LSAT, something, something with a bunch of letters in it. And I did extremely well on that test, even though I was incredibly hungover, like, didn't show up with a pencil or a shower type <laughs> and still got a perfect score. And so that I thought was every year in high school stuff. for me. Yeah. I thought I was the stuff because, you know, I was uh, acing these tests and I had already gotten a master's degree. I had my MBA and got, you know, alpha kuma summa gamma log lama lama there. And so got rejected to architecture school and they said no. And then I, it's one of those entrepreneur stories. I badgered the Dean until he accepted me. And eventually I was accepted. He didn't know that the next day I was leaving to go to California to start my first business. And the reason that I was starting the business was because I had no way to pay for architecture school or to support myself. And so I decided to start a business that would only operate during the summertime. And so you make a list of summer businesses, pool cleaning and landscaping and, you know, summer camps and stuff like that. And I didn't like being outdoors and I don't like to sweat. And so I decided I'd start a summer camp and uh, <laughs> we started a summer camp. And so that first I left Atlanta where I'm from to go to California to start our first summer camp, which did uh, 96,000, no, I'm sorry, $56,000 in revenue that year. And we had 96 students during the summer. 
Uh, we made $1,000 in profit at two Ooh. locations. The, the, the sexy part of this story is that the two locations were Stanford and MIT, and that's where we started this business. So the next year we grew to six locations and did 256,000 and the year after that we were at 22 locations and the year after that 65 locations and the year after that 96 or something locations. So let me be clear. So this summer camp is not about tire swings and, and building uh, moats in the forest. This is a computer summer camp? HTML, movie making, awesome robotics and we're early not we're in the mid 90s now so we're doing the coolest tech stuff you can think of at the coolest university in your city you know smu cambridge you know mit all the big SMU, ones SMU, uh, emory you know ucla you know the big city school the prestigious one in every big city in the united states and then we grew to uh, Canada and also the UK as well. We were at Cambridge and Oxford, you know, little places like that. Uh, and the model was just amazing. We took kids that were unhappy. They were not football players. They were not cheerleaders. They were what they were called dorks. And we educated them and taught them that the really cool thing that you grow up to be is what's called smart or boss. And <laughs> on that trajectory, right? And we took a lot of unhappy kids and made them happy. And so That's amazing. it's an amazing uh, actual product, the product. And I could tell this to the parents and the parents got it, that we will take your unhappy kid and give them a friend for the first time. And it's happening. By the way, that's at Stanford. Uh, and so it was an amazing product, an amazing company, an amazing run. What were some, what were some of the, the side products that you saw, the side benefits to the kids? Because this is something that's always been close to my heart, you know, is leadership and, and raising children. So when you watch that, I'm imagining that some of these kids are getting bullied. Some of these kids are probably feeling depressed, potentially even suicidal. I know that can certainly be present, um, especially if they're smart and if they don't have, you know, they're getting bullied in social circles. Did you, were you close enough to it that you could see some of the emotional or social changes happen as well as the equipping and the funder in the summer? Well, not only that, but <clears throat> they started coming back year after year after year. And eventually they became staff, you know, eventually they became CITs and then eventually, you know, got into college and became permanent staff for us or, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So this was like their second home. This is the second family. They became just part of, part right. of the uh, DNA. Yeah. And uh, I still know a lot of those kids. That's awesome. But what a cool story. Now you're not doing that today. What, what's well, we the, got what's out of that in 2001. Okay. So, and at that point, I had nothing to do and had gotten enough media attention from this product, from that business, won some big awards and things like that. I was on magazines and things that the university called and said, hey, do you want to come teach entrepreneurship? And I was like, I got nothing else to do, so let me come do that. And this is a really interesting story. I, it, the class was international entrepreneurship, and I made a bet with the class that I could start a business that semester, get it cash flow positive that semester, repay all my startup capital that semester. Uh, they got to choose the country and the industry that I would start the business in. 
I'm looking around to see if I have any pictures of it in here. And they chose Pakistan and furniture. So I had three and a half months to build a profitable Pakistani furniture company and repay all the startup capital, you know, and get it 100% into the black. I made that bet 12 semesters in a row at the college or at the university. And that's eventually what was in that McGraw-Hill book that you were talking about. It tells some of those stories and some of the lessons that we learned. And those- and The name of that book is School for Startups, is that right? Right. School and for so Startups, those, the, the breakthrough course for guaranteeing small business success in 90 days or less. That's awesome. School right. for Startups. So check it out at jimbeach.com. I'm feeling like that's a good place. Go on though. Yeah. And like, uh, if you want to look at some of the products, go to my LinkedIn profile and scroll down in my jobs and you'll see a timeless chair and you'll see some chairs that are just going to blow you away in gorgeousness. I mean, beauty. These are works of art. Matt, pull these, one up right now. Are, I know you're going. starting. Yeah, yeah. And these go are, and on these my are. LinkedIn profile and go to the bottom of my employment section and you'll see timeless chair. And, and these are the, uh, the Pakistani chairs? Yes. I love it. Okay, so if we go to LinkedIn, we're going to find Jim Beach. So tell me about the, while I'm pulling this up, tell me about the chairs a little bit. So the brilliant thing about it was is that we would take 100-year-old Killam carpets, just oriental rugs, and cut them up and use that as the fabric for – there's me at the White House – there's Jim at the White House. Now we're going to do Jim. Uh, if you're listening to this on the on the radio or on on the podcast audio, I'm also going to put this video up on YouTube. So check out our YouTube channel forward slash Matt Browning. Subscribe and you can uh, you can check out the archive and see Jim's video. I'm actually doing a screen share of his LinkedIn right now. So Hold here's down. you at the White House. What else do we have? Experience, SPM, winning radio host. Head of faculty. Uh, no, stop, stop, stop. Go oh. up a little bit. See, five more experiences. It says show five. Five more experiences. Here we go. Head of school for startups, international entrepreneurship, advisory board. Five more experiences. How many experiences do you have here? Restaurant owner radio. There you go. Look at those Timeless chair. <laughs> wow. That is unique. So these are like nice craftsman uh, chairs. So it's a hundred-year-old carpet that they would cut up and use as the material on the the chair. We would literally buy the carpets at flea markets in Karachi, Pakistan, and then they would get shipped to the United States. That chair into Charleston was four hundred and sixty dollars, uh, Charleston, South Carolina. And then another $100 to get it to the customer. And it would sell for two or 3000 that, that That chair on the screen right now, that's a Queen Anne or a George Washington chair. It's a Queen Anne chair because of the legs down there at the bottom, the way they sure. were turned. Uh, that chair would have sold for $2,750. $2,750. It would have cost me four twenty. But see, Matt, here's the key to the winning the bet. I only bought like 10 shares in the beginning. And so I only had four or $5,000 invested. My second rule, I limited my risk. And so to win the bet, I only had to sell two shares to win the bet. 
So you say, so lesson number one, kids, set yourself up to win from the beginning. I starting small. And that's Leave one of the revenue, reasons not I, expenses. Start small and win from the beginning. I love that, Jim. And that's one of the reasons I told you those numbers for that business, the, the computer camp where we did $56,000 the first year. You hear of a business doing $56,000 the first year and you're like, eh, that's not worth doing it. Who cares, right? In the end, it was doing millions of dollars a year. So at 12 million in revenue, 700 employees, 39 states and three countries. So, so do not despise small. started with 56,000. So don't be turned off because it's small. What did it cost you to start that? Since you brought that up with the chairs. Two grand, two grand. Two grand. So you started that computer camp with two grand in your first year, you made 56,000 in gross and you still netted a profit, which is, I, I laughed at the $1,000, but that's not laughable because you made a profit in the first year. Most, how many businesses make a profit in their first year? Not many. So that's phenomenal. Okay. So you, I, I love your philosophy. This is really neat. So you, you, so you, you're doing all these different things. You're teaching for the school. Um, did you continue just doing different entrepreneurial ventures on your own or on dares? <laughs> or did you decide that, Hey, you know what? Now I want to branch into something different. What, what was the gap between that business and, uh, and radio and media? I know that's a big part of your life right now. Well, Is there so, a story in between or did you go yeah, right into it? It's another great bet story. So, yes. So, I was doing these businesses at Georgia State, which is a great, you know, top 10 night MBA type school, right? You know, it's a downtown university school. And we were having a lot of success there. And a reporter for Bloomberg heard the story about the chairs and everything. And he said, you know, that should be a book. And I said, I I'll write that book. You find a publisher. And he's like, well, I only know one publisher. Matt, I I'm about to sneeze. Do we Sne want sneeze away. That'll be great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, this, I mean, this is real life, Jim. There's, now know, that I said that, it went away. <laughs> Look, I, I scared it away. So anyway. The dog barks, the dog barks. That's right. So anyway, this uh, Bloomberg reporter said, well, I know one guy at McGraw-Hill. And so we got on the phone and called him up and said, here's the thesis to the book. Here's what we want to write. He said, put it on a one-page page piece of paper. We sent it to him. And a week later, we had a deal with McGraw-Hill. That's it. That's it. You know, so you hear these stories of people who, you know, put out a hundred proposals and get 99 rejections and eventually the hundredth person, you know, our, and this is a great entrepreneur story. Our thesis was so compelling. In other words, our value proposition was so compelling that they said yes within one week without any sort of, you know, back and forth. And so the value proposition, the thesis of the book is something that I know you'll argue against. I've already told you part two of it. I can't wait. It's just that entrepreneurship has nothing to do with creativity, risk, or passion. And that those words are bad things for people to associate with entrepreneurship. And those words are preventing people who would otherwise be entrepreneurs from being entrepreneurs because people say, ooh, I learned in the second grade I'm not creative, I can't be an entrepreneur, or I can't afford to take any risk right now, my boys are about to go off to college, or I'm only passionate about woodworking and I can't make a living doing that, so I'm not gonna be an entrepreneur. Boom, 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 that person's at General Electric for 32 years and hates life. Because they really want to be an entrepreneur, but they, they, don't, they think being an entrepreneur is something that it's not. 
they have this myth. And so what I say is, you know what? 93% of businesses are copies of other businesses. Creativity is so, not part of it. So, so what is 93%, being really Matt, 93% you're copying, modeling something different. 93% of the time, you're not starting something from scratch. I mean, like, I think, you know, I remember watching with my, with my kid when he was about three, watching a Curious George episode with uh, George's handler, his dad, and the scientist, right? And the scientist was trying to cook. And she said, I love it. I'm a scientist at work, but I love cooking because it's so creative. And then she tried to, she thought cooking was creative and her cakes were horrific. She couldn't do them because she wasn't copying a recipe, right? So she thought she had to like make it up on the spot. And the truth is to cook a great recipe, you have to copy someone else's recipe exactly. So your thesis is essentially, let's, let's strat like, what is it? Strategy, copying, it's keeping so, things the same. Uh, find a, uh, something in Arizona that someone is doing and you do it in Denver. And you just make sure that it actually works. And you execute it really well, better than them. So my summer camp, Matt, my competitor. Brand was new a, creative idea from scratch. My, I stole my idea from my competitor. Yes. His camp was at Clark Crest Resort in Connecticut. Mine was at MIT and Stanford. And all of a sudden, you have a competitive edge that, that the other guys don't have. I was sponsored by Intel and Microsoft. <laughs> and he was sponsored by the Cracker Barrel. I don't know. So, so I just executed it better than he did. So again, kids, lesson, the lesson, let's learn that it's okay to copy something that works, right? Like if you think you, you can, if you came up with an idea and I'm curious on your take on this, Jim, if I came up with an idea that no one else has thought of, that's genius, would you say that's probably going to be most likely, right? Probably going to be a great entrepreneurial idea or a terrible one. What are the odds? If it's a creative idea, no one's ever thought of before. You know, I would, I, 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 that sounds to me like the beginning of a venture capital joke because one of the things that venture capitalists love to hear is you've never heard of this before or this is brand <laughs> new. And then the, the stereotypical thing is the venture capitalist goes, well, we actually tried that seven years ago and here are the seven reasons it failed. And to me, it looks like you've adopted five of those reasons. You know? <laughs> and the venture capitalist just makes you look like a blooming idiot because he happens to know that space better than you do as an entrepreneur, right? Because right. the truth is, if it was that great of an idea, someone else would already be in the space trying to solve the problem. Fair enough? So let me explain. I do have a, a situation where that was true, though. So when we took our camps to London, to the UK, parents there didn't send their kids away during the summertime. There, the kids just stand around on the street corner during the summer. There is no organized activity. They have camps, but they go during the school year. The entire class goes. So the infrastructure is different. So we had to go into a place where we were unknown and our model was unknown and educate them and say, here's a brand new thing for you to consider. Instead of your kids being listless during the summer, why don't you send them somewhere constructive? And the parents were like, well, that's a really interesting idea. Now, if we were to do that, 
then I have to convince them that I'm the one to trust with that in the first place, right? So it's a two-part sale now. I have to educate them on the product and on me. I'd much rather copycat and say, I'm also a hotel, but I'm a better hotel because my rooms are three times bigger. Right, right. So I, I say a lot, it's a lot easier to sell an aspirin than a vitamin or an aspirin, something someone knows they want, a vitamin they don't know they need until you educate them first and then you sell them on your particular vitamin. It's a pain in the butt. So you said, you, was this an example of something that you came up with? Well, I guess that was, is that the example in the UK that you came up with something that wasn't already there, but yeah, you brought you know, it, it into that? It was a brand new thing. There. And how did they respond? Uh, a whole new, I, you know, a whole new industry here. It was a whole new industry to them. It was something. How, how did they respond in the UK? Was it overwhelmingly? Was it the same, less, or more successful than the US campuses? Same. Not the same. Uh, we had a very typical spend and revenue pattern. We would usually spend about fifteen thousand dollars in a new market and end up getting about 25 campers a week at that location in year one. In year two, we would have that money, spend about $7,000 and triple in the number of students per week. That was our standard formula, which was one of the reasons the business was just so damn sexy. That's outstanding. Jim, I, I could go on forever with you. And I, I hope we can do uh, another part at some point. I don't know if you'd be willing to come back on the show another little while. That would be awesome. Because this is, I mean, you're a guy like, how can we not just pick your brain on, on entrepreneurship? Uh, I appreciate your time with me for sure. And, and with the listeners, um, you mentioned in the beginning, or, or maybe I mentioned before we were on air that you'd be, you had a few things that might be really cool for us to get a hold of. Um, and I love your take as you're not this, I don't know, like you, you were telling me off air that most of your business and everything you do is really around your radio show and it's around sponsorship and, and a lot of that kind of work. Um, but being the entrepreneur you are, you still always compile lists. You have lists of all the most valuable things that you could possibly have. And you said you might be willing to give something away to people. Is that still true? Yeah. So I have, you know, normally this comes up in in conversation a little bit more casually. So it would fit in a little better. We just didn't get to it today. But I have two lists that I would like to offer. And maybe your listeners can uh, choose between them. So I have a list of radio shows slash podcasts that are looking for small business owners as guests. And it has the email address of who to contact the URL the, all of the stuff that you would need. And what you would do with that list is put together a three or four paragraph thing on, here's why I'm interesting, here's why you should put me on your radio show, and then you email it to all of those people. Oh, by the way, I have a book that just came out on that topic called uh, Free Radio and Podcast Marketing in 30 Minutes. You should check that out on that Amazon place. And if you get the book, then this list is the perfect accompanying tool that go hand in hand. Or if you don't like that list, I have a list of 500 big companies that give away sponsorship money for, for stuff, for Black History Month or whatever, or, you know. So they have a reason and then they give away money and then you just find a way that your event or your product or your company can align with that and you can go to them and say, hey, we're a company that does XYZ with this thing, like Black History Month or whatever it is, would you like to sponsor? And so I have the email addresses of the 500 people in America that make those decisions. 
How are you? That's amazing. Okay, so so guys, I'm sorry. You yeah, those are your choices. You, and you got to choose just to or just make chicken. it fair. Or you can have the chicken. Chicken is delicious tonight. Yeah, but but, but the fish, the fish is no, really, really – No, not the, the steak. This is an airplane. It's been up here for a long time. <laughs> you can have – you can have – okay, so let me get the, the – and what's the book's name on Amazon? Let's make uh, sure you check that out. Radio and podcast marketing in 30 minutes. It's All a right. book designed to be read in 30 minutes, and it teaches you everything I know about how to get on hundreds and hundreds of radio shows for free. I've been on about 400 radio shows. I promote my stuff and sell it. It costs absolutely nothing. Imagine it costs you know, $1,000 to run a 30-second spot. I get an 8, 9, 10, 12-minute interview. That's $12,000 for free times 400. That's $493 trillion, Matt. Of I don't know what your advertising budget is to the average person, but I'll bet it's not $400 trillion. That's incredible. Okay, so get Jim's book on Amazon. We'll put a link in the show notes to it. Free radio and podcast marketing in 30 minutes. Uh, being an entrepreneur is not about being creative, passionate, or taking risk. It is about copying like 93% of businesses do. Email Jim. You can email him right here. And this is, ready? This is the oldest, schoolest way to do this. You're going to open up your email machine. Email Jim at james.beach, like the beach, like the ocean. James.beach at att.net. He had that since the 1900s. I think the 1800s was it? 1831. 1831 it started. at att.net. And tell him you want a list of either the 500 companies that are willing to sponsor or it was the 500 radio and podcast shows that are looking for interviews. Man, that is awesome. I can't thank you enough for that. We're just about out of time. So, Jim, before we head off, I got one final question I always ask, and I'd love to get your take on this. I'm sure we shared a lot of successes. I'm sure you've probably had some stumbling blocks along the way as well, like all of us. If you could change anything in your life and in your history and experience, what would you change? Or would you leave it all the same? He's pointing to his hair. You would change My lack of hair. No, your lack uh, of hair. You would have grown it back sooner. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you mentioned failures, and I thought you were going to ask about failures. You know what I didn't tell the audience is that I was $10 million in debt, and the bank sent me a letter saying, get out of your house because we're taking it away from you. And would you change that? Would you go back and say, you know what? I could have circumvented that. I could have I gotten rid of that issue. Genuinely looking back, would you have changed it, or did it play into what you're doing now? I'm going to tell you a secret. All right. You're leaning would, in. I'm leaning in too. I, I would have changed who I was married to. <laughs> and that is the answer of the day. But you know what? I did. <laughs> Jim Beach, thank you so much for your time, my friend. I sure appreciate it. Good night. That was Interview Friday. Make sure you rate, subscribe, review this show. I sure appreciate your support and help. Enjoy your weekend as usual. Get out there and crush it. Do something awesome. I'll talk to you next week.